Literary giant Toni Morrison died this week at 88. What was Morrison's legacy? Our critics Wesley Morris, Dwight Garner, and Pearl Sagal will join us to discuss. How do you write a memoir about your childhood home? Sarah Broom will be here to talk about her new book, The Yellow House. Alexander Alter will have the latest in publishing news. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is the Book Review Podcast for The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Joining us now, our book critics, Dwight Garner, Paul Sagal, joins us from Rome, and special guest critic, Wesley Morris, here to talk about Toni Morrison. This was a very sad week in the literary world. Toni Morrison died age 88. What was your first reaction when you heard this news? Uh, I found out the way I found out about all these things. Somebody texts me. They'll just text me the name of the person who's died. And I'm like, I always, mm-hmm. I now know, right? So I got a text from my friend Bill who was like, Tony, oof. Wow. I'm like, well, I, I know what that means. Yeah. I saw some chatter on the internal, the New York Times, the, there was some internal email chatter about it that I saw, what, 9.30 on yeah, Monday morning? Yeah, the Vulture posted it at 9 9- 12 or 9.14 a.m., I was getting off the train, and it was not yet confirmed, but their piece said that it was a source close to someone at Knopf or someone who spoke, who, someone who worked at Knopf, and it felt authoritative, and we'd known that she'd been sick for a long time. She had gotten an award from the Center for Fiction in the fall, and Oprah was there to present the award, and Tony did not show up because she was sick. And, I mean, I feel like no one doesn't show up for Oprah except for maybe Toni Morrison. So we knew it was How about you, Parl, being over in Rome? I think I found it the same way that a lot of people did. I I just, I saw it online, and at first I... I couldn't believe it, and I couldn't couldn't even believe my reaction. Generally, I, I tend to be pretty... You know, I mean, I, I get attached to writers like anybody else, but I always feel like they live in their books, they live forever. But this one, I this one, I it, this one hit hard, and I think I, I just felt there were so many books in her. Still, I still felt her own curiosity. I still felt like I wanted to hear what she thought about everything. And in so many ways, both on the page and off, she was a real north star for a lot of us. And yeah, I should be out here looking at Rome, but instead I'm looking at pictures of Toni Morrison on the internet. You know, <laughs> The pictures are really great, They're I excellent. have to say. Yeah, because I think it was her on the page and also her in life, you know? And it's, I think it's the way that she lived. I think it's the way that she spoke about literature, how accessible she was to people, and how familiar she was to people, even though her books have this unearthly power to them. She just felt like someone maybe you didn't know, but you would want to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just curious. I mean, I feel like everybody had their own way into Morrison's work, and I was just wondering, you know, Wesley, you wrote about it so beautifully in your beautifully in your sort of remembrance. But I was wondering, if, was there a first book, or what was everybody's introduction to, to, to Morrison? Well, mine, I, I was born in West Virginia, and I, I grew up after that in a small town in Florida, a very white town, very white uh, public high school. And I was, one of the luckiest breaks of my entire life was to have three or four English teachers in my high school that would that would push books at me, not just books, but records, and the good stuff, not the official stuff. They would push over, you know, the stuff they thought was just the real stuff. And, and one day, one of them pushed across The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. And 
I took it home and just read it, I think, in, in about four hours. And it, you know, tore my head off. I'd read nothing like it. As a matter of fact, I think it's the first book I'd ever read by an African-American writer looking back on it. In college, I devoured all kinds of writers, but I didn't have any history then with African-American literature. And it was one of the best reading experiences, one of the most intense of, of my life. I tried to read Beloved. <laughs> first? Oh, yeah. When I was 11 years old, I tried to read Beloved. I was told not to do it. Actually, was told this is a this is a book for grownups. Don't do it. But I I that's did like it. That's like a you know that's like an embossed invitation. Oh yeah. Child. My memory of that book and it just sitting on my aunt Katie's what what would have been like a desk in her dining room. It just seemed enormous. I have like an original hardcover of the book. It's the same size as all the other books. But to my 11-year-old eyes and my memory of this moment, it was like this giant thing that I that I was not to touch. I tried to read it, tried to read my mother's copy and uh <laughs> I stopped. I didn't know I don't know what I was doing. It was it was it was difficult. And then a couple years later, I checked out a copy of Tar Baby. This this very edition mm. um, from my uh, my high school library. You treat books well. Is that the that's not the book, is it? Not the book I checked out. It oh, is okay. a, it is oh, a first oh, okay. edition that I have like I keep buried somewhere in my house. The story in that I tell in the piece <laughs> that I wrote about like keeping a Toni Morrison book on a it's I don't have a nightstand, but I have a table that sits outside my bedroom, and there's always been as an adult there's been a Toni Morrison book near where I sleep, like always. Why? Just because she was the person for whom I understood what it what was actually possible if you liked language and you liked the experience of experiencing humanity. I never liked James Baldwin as a writer, to be honest with you. I mean, as a, as a younger person, I had read her first. And so he is great. There is a greatness in him. But I find his greatness to not entirely be literary in the way that Toni Morrison's greatness is 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 like an a hugely refined literariness. And so going from this experience and this the experience of reading Ellison and a bunch of other like writers of all races there was something about her being a black woman and me experiencing her through the black women in my life and in my family it does have a like a, a beyond literary significance to mm-hmm. me. It is a these are totemic works. I do feel that they are biblical in their way, and I like having them because they make me feel they do make me feel protected in this very sort of secular but not unreligious way. Parl, how about your first experience? Yeah, my first experience was beloved, and I don't know how how old I was, but it was my first experience noticing style on the page, right? It has that very unforgettable beginning, 124, respiteful period, full of a baby's venom. And I felt that period between those two phrases like a bolt of lightning. And I remember being little and being like, she has split one sentence into two. Why did she do that? What does that mean? You know, um, what is 124? And I think I just, I still remember standing up near one of those like rotating carols of books in the library middle school I don't know you know and and just holding it and just feeling like all the hairs on the back of my neck rise and and I think it was also you know like I grew up in Virginia you know again very white school very white and it was one of the few books that I 
would see, you know, haunting the library, as I think we all did in different ways, that wasn't by a white writer, you know, so I think I automatically had that kind of, I was just drawn to it. And then to read this book and to read it, as Leslie's saying, that unearthly literary power, the music in the prose, she's almost, you know, she's a writer, but she's a thinker, and she's she's got arguments, but there's also this the swell and the crescendo of those sentences, it's an instrument. And you know, not for a reason like, you know, her influences are Melville and Faulkner and that's her literary inheritance. But it was an event, you know, and you I think when you read some of those books and it feels like it happened to me and really shaped I think a lot of my appetites as a reader for both books that really kind of invent their own forms in a lot of ways. It's still shocking to me that Beloved is taught in school when you consider how experimental it is how full of history it is. And it's also I was among the reactions I've been watching in the last couple of days have not been from readers, but it's been from scholars and people who've come, people like Christina Sharp and Dion Brand, who came to the work of history and archives and scholarship from her novels. You know, that's the other power of her work is she created a new language for thinking about trauma and the collective and rememory and these kinds of inheritances that, I mean, I, what other novelist has done that? One of the first people I spoke to after she died was Fran Lebowitz, who was a close personal friend of hers. But one of the things she said, in addition to some really great stories, anecdotes, was that she really felt that even today, Toni Morrison remains underrated as a writer because people look at what she wrote about and the subjects she wrote about and the experiences, but that the writing itself was so bold and so experimental that she felt like it still hadn't quite gotten its due. Mm -hmm. By the way, the interview that she gave uh, Fran Leibowitz to the Paris Review is definitely worth finding. It's it's about Toni Morrison and it's, it's hilarious and very fond. What do you think she did stylistically in form and structure that was new? I think it's hard to summarize because I think in each book she set herself a different problem. The books are very different in their ways. Yeah, and so each one, so like you look at Sula, and Sula is, I mean, some books, I think, my personal read on her is that some books she wrote like poems, some books she wrote like little short stories. So Sula is individual little episodes that are threaded together, and it's literally like at the end of each scene, it goes black, the curtain descends. And when it rises again, where are we? Whose point of view are we in? What time are we in? You know, so I mean, every time I think she was so interested in these questions of form and structure and voice and psychology and point of view, she sets herself a series of different problems. And I think I agree. Yeah, in terms of time, too, she, she's so comfortable writing in the present day and writing in, in the series Deep Past. I mean, which, which, is, which is fairly rare with American writers to do it so well. I agree that there is something about her that... Even in death now, I I still feel like, and I know this is crazy to say because it's how do you quantify this, but I do feel that there's a difference between how we seem to feel about Philip Roth dying mm. versus Tony Moore. And not even versus, but, well, first of all, Roth wrote way more novels than, mm-hmm. than Tony Morrison wrote. How but many I, novels did she write? 14? 11. 11. She started at 40, though. I feel the need to... Yeah, no, 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 right. And the feeling that Parle has that, that she she wasn't done, which is the feeling that I had. The shock that I had when I got that text was like, well, damn, I mean, she... I don't know how many more novels she could She was written, working on a novel. But, I mean, I, I felt like she she really wasn't done. But I will say there are so many things to go back to her and consider. And I really think that the daring in her is something that that you guys have touched on, which is that she was never satisfied with with one kind of thing. As Parle said, 
each book sort of set for itself its own challenge and, it, and to solve its own problem. Paradise, I agree with Dwight that it does suffer in some ways from being overwritten. But I remember devouring that book and just being hooked by the idea that this woman had basically written a Western. Yeah. And the fire and, and enjoyment in, in her that was coming out of her in finding this new place to put her language, mm-hmm. right? This pre-existing place that is never, rarely, if I mean, I'm trying to think now, black women who've written Westerns. Zero! Well, there's also was very <laughs> and, little fiction by black writers about the Midwest, right. which was her oh, it's interesting. I don't, I don't know if you both agree, but I feel, someone once said that when we talk about the writers we love, the writers we admire the most, the great ones, what we're really saying is we love three, four, five of that writer's books. We don't mean everything. Yes. And, and yes, it seems yes, pretty yes. clear <laughs> Seems pretty clear to me, talking about Toni Morrison, that we can, I wonder if we can agree about this, that, and I, I can't claim to have read every word of every novel, so I, so I'm, I'm, this is just a tentative idea, but I, but I think we would probably locate the locus of her strongest work in the first half of her career. Are, are, are we, do you pretty much agree with that? I mean, up to, I don't know, if we had to... Like cutting off at Beloved? Yeah, or there, there was some. There was some. There's some decent writing after that, but I, you know, I, I don't think any of the, the novels after Beloved or are as authoritative as, as the novels that came before. No, I agree Good. with that. The authority is coming in some ways from this from from a different experiment, right? Jazz for me is an experiment in voice, right? Toni Morrison is applying this way of writing to this very specific, very to me anyway, familiar voice of 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 the neighborhood know-it-all so this is the book right after beloved right after Beloved. i mean but re- five years after so mm-hmm. but it's true that they don't have the sort of titanic galvanic force of something like song of solomon or or beloved or even the bluest eye when you have a favorite writer too i get upset yeah. because a lot of my favorite writers wrote way too many books you can argue that you should take half their shelf down you know like and, who? Oh, God. I mean, you know, let's just say Updike for one, or, or who has this massive shelf. I agree with people who say he wrote way, way, way too many novels. No one, in my experience, turned it on like like Roth did at the very end. Like, wouldn't it have been fantastic if, if Tony had lived long enough to fire off some really sort of, you know, dark, straight, you know, really about her experience aging? And, you know, I would have loved to have read, to mm-hmm. have read a book like oh that from God, Tony Morrison. Yeah. Yeah. Still, when you have a favorite writer, and Updike's a bad example, but I'll use him anyway, that if you love a writer the way that, the way that I, I love Morrison as well— even their lesser work you love because it's this personality in your life. This writer becomes part of you and you've read everything and, and you want to read everything. And even when she's not quite firing, there are so many great things in it that you're still happier there than many other places. Did any of you meet her? I talked to her on the phone once for a piece. I don't even remember what it was about. It was so long ago. And she'd just woken up from a nap. And <laughs> she had that amazing voice, right? Mm-hmm. That loving voice. And she was so warm and curious and we just stayed on the phone and she could be so accessible and she could be so generous with time and attention and I think some of the interesting pieces that have been coming out have been by her students Mm. or by young writers Mm -hmm. who felt mentored by her especially young black women writers and that's the other thing and I think that actually does connect a little bit to that point that Wesley made that I think it's it's right yeah it feels different right when when Phil Broth died and I think that there is something about the way that she, I mean, I, I don't want this to be true, but I wonder if this is also true because she was so loved and because she was so loved by women who imprinted on her and black women. And I wonder if there's something in just the culture that 
devalues that, right? Like that, I mean, men loved Roth the same way. Some women did too, but there's something about the emotional response that people have to her that I wonder if that gets tied up into the fact that we're not talking enough about her technique and her style, although some people are. There is that way that women's, you know, enthusiasms get sort of relegated. And I think she was, she was a passion for women. And as you're saying for Wesley, right, she was a passion for the women in your family. And a lot of us came to, to her in, in ways like that. Very few writers in American life who functioned the way she did, in part thanks to Oprah, but she, but she was a, a massive bestseller. I mean, Toni Morrison was a, a main Book of the Month Club selection very early in her career. But, but the enormous commercial success she had combined with the critical success was fascinating because for many people, and I know some of them in my own family, some of the books that, that Oprah pushed of Toni Morrison's were difficult books and it mm-hmm. was it was really interesting to have conversations uh, with people after reading writing that strong and that complicated it, it opened up a lot of good conversations in, in this culture Wesley for those who haven't read your piece can you talk a little bit about the role that Morrison had in the lives of the women in your family well it's interesting because it wasn't like she was the first black woman they had ever read right I would have said if there were no Toni Morrison that we were a Gloria Naylor family, you know, <laughs> there was something about the the marketing of Toni Morrison. I feel like the I want to say, because I don't know how Beloved, for instance, came into the lives of, you know, my Aunt Katie and my mother and, you know, some of my mother's girlfriends. But I actually feel like it was a talker, mm-hmm. right? There was this book that this woman had written about slavery. And I don't know if at the time it was like talked about as like in some way related to roots or what. But this was the book that everybody had to read. And I thought like having been a reader who would just pick books up off my mother's bookshelf. I mean, it's how I read what of Stephen King I've read. I've read secondhand in some ways because there is always a book around and I'd pick up these books and I just start going through them. And some I'd keep going with and some I'd be like, I don't Leon Uris, it's not really. (laughs) I read all of Exodus, by the way. You did not. I was going to say, Parl, that who picked up their dad's copy of Leon Uris? You did is the answer. Always. I would just say, like, I it just, I feel like this book came into lots of people's lives as a marketing event, right? And yeah. I think my Katie had read, she had read Sula because that was the book that I was most fascinated to read. And I did read that in its entirety before I got to college. And I, I don't know, there was something about this black woman taking on this huge monumental subject in a fictional context. It wasn't, it wasn't Roots, which we can talk about the, the veracity of Roots in some other time. But it was presented as fiction, not as the truth, which gave it a kind of extra moral authority in some, some way. And from there, I just think Toni Morrison became what Oprah Winfrey made her in mm-hmm. a lot of ways, which is, which is like our, one of our great authors, period. And somebody that everybody has a duty as an American citizen to read. Mm. One of the interesting things about her death is that everyone seemed stunned, right? Mm-hmm. Shocked. But she was 88. She was 88. Yeah. She was 88. And I wonder if there's something in that because mm. it's almost like really, as you said, Dwight, it's like people felt like she wasn't done. I think you said that too. Yeah, Parl said it. Parl um, said it also. Yeah. Everyone has said it. But why? Like, what is it that we wanted? We clearly wanted something more. Don't you guys feel like it's a moral thing? She seems sort of eternal. Yeah, <laughs> she thought she wasn't going to die. Yeah. I don't know. Something about her, her presence, her being felt 
they said something extra. She was just going to preside mm-hmm. and continue to preside. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know what that means. I think that this is what I'm asking you guys. She was a moral force and she was a, an embodiment of ideas. I don't know, Parl, do you see what I'm saying? Totally, totally. I think that like, she had a certain kind of authority and she had an authority with language and also I think with life. And I feel like when we look at some of our great writers today, I don't know that that many people could speak to the varieties of experience in life the way that she could. And there was something in her sentences that felt like they had in themselves a kind of grandeur and a seriousness and a sense of musicality and a power of their own. And it just feels like she, yeah, she leaves a vacuum a little bit. Not to say there aren't other writers who can do these things, but somebody like her, she was so fearless and she wrote so beautifully and so powerfully of of experiences that were devalued, not just racially, but of the domestic. She went everywhere and she made everything a great, rich subject for literature. And then she found also a language to write about the unspeakable, which is what she does in Beloved. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you write about the Middle Passage like that? How do you write about these experiences? She made up words. She made up a literary form. You know, she harnessed the supernatural. So all of these things in one writer's it feels shocking that she's gone, and yet at the same time, I've been wandering around just feeling so lucky that we had her at all. Eras are always ending. When Roth died, we felt that an era had ended, you know, in a way, when, when Wolf died. But this, for me, draws a pretty serious line. I mean, we, of the great writers of the 20th century, we still have, you know, Pinch and DeLillo and, and several other people. But, but Morrison was arguably a step above in, in, in many ways in terms of her significance to the culture and to literature and as a moral presence. And it does feel like with her death that we're kind of moved on to a new place. I feel like Morrison was a reader more for everyone, too. Than True, than, than either Pinchon or DeLillo. Yeah. Yes, I agree yeah. with that. Yeah, that's a great... I mean, can you guys talk about that a little bit? Because I feel that way, too. I mean, I feel like DeLillo is just not presented as a writer for everyone. It's not that he couldn't necessarily be, right? Yeah. And he wasn't because his books didn't sell the way hers did. At the well, same time. I think, I mean, all of those writers, right, were experimental and their prose could be difficult. And yet somehow they remain inaccessible where she was accessible or people were willing to sort of do to that extra to work. To access her. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah, they also, they fetishized, they fetishized being difficult in a way that she mm. she was challenging, sure, and she was ambitious. That's a great point. But I think that for her, her writing had a moral mission, and right. she wrote to heal. Right, She, she and really she wanted thought. to be read. And Delilah wrote to break things, yeah. Yeah, and, but she, and she wrote to sort of give people this kind of language for things that they didn't have language for, and she, the spirit animating her work also feels so singular. The place in the culture for writers is so different now. I mean, we all know this, yeah, but, yeah. you know, the culture just made more room for writers back when I mean, Toni Morrison was starting and these other writers were talking about it. It's just like music now. We'll never we'll never have, you know, bands that occupy the, the center territory, you know, Neil Young, Aretha Franklin, whoever. You know, the, the culture is fractured and it's happened too with, with reading. And people like Toni Morrison, figures like her will have a much harder time emerging in the future, I, yeah. I, I think. I mean, even going back and looking at the video clips of her, all the times that she was interviewed, on primetime television, just where is the opportunity for that? And going back and looking, the thing that I keep re-watching is just that moment where President Obama gives her the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I just got a chill. Yeah, yeah, I get it. It is cold I, in here. 
I was going to ask earlier, why do the pictures of her matter? Because somehow these pictures of her, you get the sense you can see this woman dancing on a table in a bar. And why does that matter to me? It doesn't. My writers can, I don't care if they're, they're, if they're told stools who, who live in a basement. But somehow the idea of this woman was just so yeah, vibrant. She was in, was a, very in appealing. a silk negligee mm-hmm. with no bra, like just <laughs> 1977. I, just, I don't know that other people it, dancing it, on tables. Oh, it, just, it just made me happy to see all the pictures of her. You know, just so. Well, there is this documentary that came out earlier this summer. The Pieces I Am. The Pieces I Am. Yeah. And she says it's a throwaway line. Well, it's not such a throwaway line, but it's never like followed up on because it's not that kind of movie, unfortunately. But she does say at some point about her years, her college years, and a little bit after that, that she was a wild woman. And she did a lot of crazy stuff, and she loved it. And all of that wildness is in the books. You just, you don't right. even have to look too hard to find it. But there's so many crazy things that happen in a Toni Morrison novel <laughs> that you can't believe you're reading. I want to end there. I want to end on that image of her as a wild woman. <laughs> all right, Parl, thank you so much for joining us from Rome. Dwight, thanks, Leslie, thanks for being here. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. Alexander Alter joins us now to talk about what's going on in the publishing world. Hey, Alexandra. Hey, Pamela. What's going on? So this week, Barnes & Noble announced that they had reached the agreement with Elliott Advisors, which is acquiring the company. And this was a deal that was reached earlier this year, but the deal has finally gone through. And that means that James Don, formerly the head of Waterstones, Britain's largest bookstore chain, will become the CEO. He is uh, moving to New York, I believe, this month. And in a really, I thought, excellent and thorough piece by our colleague David Siegel out of London. James Daunt was extremely blunt about the chain's problems. I was a little surprised because often when you have a new CEO, they're trying to be diplomatic and talking about the strengths of the company and its legacy and how honored they are to be at the helm. And here is what James Daunt had to say about Barnes & Noble. He said, when you leave the store, you feel mildly betrayed. Not massively, but mildly. It's a bit ugly. There's piles of crap around the place. It all feels a bit unloved. The booksellers look a bit miserable. It's all a bit run down. <laughs> Whoa. I was, I was like, those are fighting words. On the other hand, I think publishers in America are encouraged by how forthright he's being because they also privately, nobody would ever give me a quote like that except for somebody very brave on the record. But I think privately a lot of publishers feel that way and think that what they've longed for in recent years as Barnes & Noble has been struggling, you know, closing stores and losing money, is for someone to really invest in the company and to treat the the physical spaces, you know, turn them into more inviting spaces and really invest in in this idea of physical retail because I think one of the one of the huge struggles for Barnes & Noble has been competing with Amazon and they invested so much in the Nook and in their digital strategy and that cost them more than a billion dollars because they just weren't a technology company as much as they tried to be. They weren't cut out for that. In the meantime, you've seen this incredible revival of the indies, or at least if not an incredible revival, they've stabilized, they've bounced back a bit. And I think that was something interesting about James Don 
the way he approached Waterstones when he, you know, that chain was on the verge of bankruptcy. And he kind of turned it around by taking some lessons from independence. I think there's a lot of relief and optimism, too, in that Daunt is perceived as a book person. I think they've had people come in from other industries That's to sort right. of like bring what we know about, you know, records or supermarkets retail, exactly. and retail uh-huh. in other areas to book selling. And for publishers, at least, they're happy to see someone who knows the product. Exactly. And how it differs from, you know. I don't know, detergent. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that publishers might not be as happy about, although they they love that his background is a bookseller, it was interesting to read in David Siegel's piece, one of the approaches that James Daunt has had success with is actually thwarting publishers when it comes to giving them a lot of power over what gets displayed in stores. Because, you know, when you're operating a big chain like Barnes & Noble, publishers are able to pay money to have their biggest titles of the season displayed prominently at the front. And what that does is kind of homogenize the chain so that all your stores across the country end up feeling sort of similar. And James Daunt was very opposed to that. And he said, I think we should empower our individual bookstores to decide what their customers are interested in. I think we should pick the books that we think are good and hand sell those. And that's been effective at Waterstones. I I don't know how American publishing companies are going to feel about that because I do think they like to have they like that control. a little bit of, of control. It's a very important retail platform for them. I mean, they don't have that many ways to reach readers. And so giving that up, if that does get sort of tweaked, I think is going to be a little bit painful. But it might be worth it to see a revived Barnes & Noble. How are people who are working at Barnes & Noble now feeling? Are they nervous? Do they worry that, you know, they're going to get fired or their job's going to be eliminated? I mean, typically with a transition like this, there's almost always some turnover at the top of the company. I think there have been layoffs, you know, at the chain as stores have closed. So I think if you're kind of down the chain working in a store, the idea that some investment is going to take place is probably more encouraging than less. But at the executive level, I mean, often when people come in, they want to bring new people or their own people, although it's nice to have some continuity, too. So I don't know exactly how James Don is going to approach that. All right. Well, book season is upon us. Fall book season, which is the book season in many ways. Uh, We will see what that means. Thanks so much, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. Sarah Broom joins us now. Her new book is called The Yellow House. Sarah, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Sarah is a journalist, and this is your first book. First book. A memoir. Let's start with a house in your title. Where was The Yellow House? What kind of house was it? So in 1961, my mom, Ivory May, bought a shotgun house in an area of New Orleans called New Orleans East. She was 19 years old, and she bought it with every cent she had. Back then, New Orleans East was this booming area of the city. It was called the last great frontier. NASA was there. The space industry was booming. It was the oil boom. Everything seemed very assured and positive. And then, of course, over time, that section of the city becomes an abandoned kind of no man's land, it's called. It's left off of many city maps, Mm -hmm. and it sort of becomes this unmapped place. 
So many people, when they think of New Orleans, they think of the Garden District. This was not the Garden District. This was not the French Quarter. Where is it geographically related to the rest of the main New Orleans that people know of as tourists? It's about 15 minutes or so from the Garden District, actually closer to the French Quarter, maybe nine miles or so. Mm-hmm. It's actually quite big. It's about 50 times the size of the French Quarter, which gives a little bit of perspective. And it's this very diverse community. You describe the house as a shotgun house. What does that mean? So it's actually a camelback shotgun, which means it sort of runs straight in a row. So every room leads to the next. There's no side hall. What we call a railroad apartment in New York. Exactly. And in this house, at the back of the house, it, it has a second story. But that second story only runs the length of one room at the very back. You mentioned that your mother, Ivory May, was only 19 mm-hmm. when she bought this house. So that's very unusual. First, that she's widowed at such a young age. She remarried. She remarried your father. Was she together with your father at the time? Because he worked for NASA. And is that why they chose that that area? She bought the house actually before she and my father were even married. Mm-hmm. She bought it a few years after she was widowed the first time, actually. And she sort of held on to the house. And she and my father eventually moved on the same street, Wilson Mm -hmm. Avenue, but on a different side of it, and lived there for a while while they fixed up the house. So it was a house my mother had and held on to and then fixed up after she married my father. How unusual was it for a single 19-year-old African-American woman to purchase a house on her own In 1961. I think really unusual, but contextually, and that's what I'm really interested in. I'm obsessed with context and putting things in context. In New Orleans, New Orleans has a history of black people buying property, actually. Mm -hmm. That's one of the important things to know about the place, that many of the people whose homes were washed away were homeowners. And then also going farther back, there were people of color, free people of color, who owned huge amounts of property throughout the city including in places like the French Quarter or, of course, the Treme neighborhood, which is a historically black neighborhood. It was unusual, I think, thinking of it now, Mm -hmm. but not so unusual in the context of New Orleans history. Now, if your mother spent every penny she had on purchasing this house, clearly it was very important to her. What did that house and owning a home of her own signify for her? You know, I think for my mom, it was her dream. It's sort of the house became this repository, a place for her family. She'd learned this from my grandmother, her mother. My grandmother was someone who cared so much about home. These were women who had gorgeous homes. Everything in them was chosen and selected. And so this meant a substantial amount. And my mother was the first woman in her family to buy a house. So she actually owned a house before my grandmother owned a house. So this was a really big deal Mm -hmm. in the family. And I think that was my mother's world. It was her sense of independence. It was a place that she made. It was, if she was, and I think she is an artist, Mm -hmm. it was a place where she could work, so to speak, because she made everything for the house. What did she do professionally? She was a nurse's aide. So she was a a what they call a licensed practical nurse. 
and and she took care of people really well, which is a thing she still does <laughs> well to this day. But beyond her work hours, she was a seamstress. She sewed all of our clothing. She made the she dressed the house, so to speak. She made all of its curtains and and was just always a maker of mm-hmm. things. You said all of our clothing. So who does that mean in addition to you and presumably at some point your father? Simon. Yeah. So there are 12 of us, 12 children, and I'm the youngest. Wow. All your mother and Simon together? So my the between my mother, so my mother was married twice. Mm-hmm. Her first husband died and then my father would eventually die. And so that's significant for me because the house was, I I later came to realize, the way that I understood my father. I understood him through this thing that he helped make and that he built with his own hands. And that was part of the devastation when the house was no longer there. I was sort of searching for traces then of my father. Okay, so 12 children. 12 children. What was the age range there? So born... To every decade beginning in the 40s, right? So we have this mixed family because my father had three children from his marriage when he came to my mother. And then my mother physically had nine children out of her body. But we were never split in a way. There was never any distinction between us. And so I'm the youngest of those 12 children. Did all of you live in that house? At various moments, so I think because the the age gap is so vast, Mm -hmm. at various times people lived together. But I don't think there was ever a moment where we were all there. But there were moments where people came back Mm -hmm. for personal reasons. You know, they were going through things. And so then the house would become fuller so that there would be a substantial number of people at different points. What was it like for you growing up in that house and in that neighborhood? It was a fantasy in a good way, I think, because, you know, the thing about the we lived on this cutoff end of a very long street, but it felt wonderful as a young kid because it felt like being in the country. Mm -hmm. We had lots of land and lots of space to roam, you know, so there was it was a sort of a child's fantasy, really. It wasn't until I became older that I understood what it meant to be cut off in that way. But but growing up and being in the house with so many characters, Mm -hmm. it was, you know, immensely fun. So what did it come to mean to you when you were older? I came to sort of understand what it means to be cut off. And so we were cut off by Sheffminter Highway in the very literal and immediate sense. So when in was order that constructed. So that was constructed I think in the 60s mm-hmm. or so, the 50s or 60s. And when you start to realize that you have to cross a pretty massive and busy highway to get to the rest of your life, to get to school, to get to the grocery store, to get to church, to get to the post office. You start, when I got older, I started to feel this kind of, this cut-offness. Mm-hmm. And I started to feel what it meant to, to be in danger. My sister was hit on Sheffminster Highway trying to get to school. You know, she was sort of dragged by a car. Oh, wow. It's a miracle that she walks or uses her limbs. So we came, I came to know these stories, and it all felt, as I got older, very dangerous. In 1961, when your mother brought the home, you said it was a, like a new frontier kind sure. of area, a lot of business in the, in the neighborhood. What happened to New Orleans East over the decades? After the oil bust in the 80s and 
white flight, there was a large amount of divestment in New Orleans East. Was it racially diverse prior to that point? When, when my mother moved in, they were the rare black family in New Orleans East. Mm-hmm. New Orleans East was mostly white. By the late 70s, 80s, it had completely changed so that New Orleans East was mostly black. There was a preponderance of Section 8 housing, and there were all of the sort of big, grandiose plans for the area had been abandoned, right? There were no jobs. By the time I left for college in the late 90s, there were no jobs to be had in the East. We were all going to the French Quarter to find work. All of my siblings were going there, and I was even going there for my early jobs. How deliberate was that process of segregation of that neighborhood? I mean, the bust obviously happened and was sort of out of control, but presumably you're talking about the civil rights movement occurring in that period, desegregation, or at least attempts to desegregate the school system. How did it become so segregated? This was happening in ways throughout the city, right? And because when you have white flight, I think that changes the contours of a neighborhood and what comes to be known as a place worth investing in really changes. And I think in the case of of New Orleans East, you know, there were huge amounts of residents who were sent to New Orleans East to live sort of in on housing vouchers. When that happens, I think, it, it prompts city officials or people who would care, who make policy, to start to discriminate and to invest less in these communities. And I think that's what happened in New Orleans East. And, and also, when you have fewer businesses coming in, it creates a kind of ripple effect, right? So, There were no jobs and people weren't coming. And then the mall closed down. So you started to see it right in front of your eyes. You know, the big department stores went away. So there there wasn't a draw anymore. People weren't coming from other places in the city, which made New Orleans East feel like a more closed-in place. What kind of effect did that have on life in your home in the Yellow House Growing up in the Yellow House was interesting because it was a house that we couldn't quite maintain. And I I say we because that's the way that it felt. And, you know, there were a lot of us. And my mother was—my father died in 1980 when I was six months. And and so there was a lot for her to maintain on her own, and she couldn't quite. And so to to sort of be in a place— It all became part of what it felt like to even live in the house. Living in New Orleans East was a similar feeling. must have been tough for her, too, to have been widowed twice like that. Absolutely. And I think psychically it was hard on her. And especially, I think, with my father, because they had been together for 18 or 19 years. You know, they were madly in love with each other. Mm. That was an entire almost two decades of her her life together with him. So my mother, I think, was recovering from, from those losses. We're talking about your house in the past tense. Yes. The yellow house no longer exists. What happened to it? So in 2006, so after Katrina, but in 2006, my brother Carl showed up one day to the place where our house was, and the house was simply gone. It was simply missing. And it's such a strange idea for me to even say 
But it turns out that the the, notif- the official notification that the house was going to be demolished had been delivered to the mailbox in front of the house itself. And of course, no one was living in the house because the house had been wrecked after the storm. And so that notification was delivered and none of us knew and the house was simply demolished without any of us being there to witness it. Let's crawl back to Katrina and what happened when the storm hit. Who was living there at the time? So at the time, my mother had was mostly living uh, at my grandmother's house. My grandmother at that time had Alzheimer's, and so she was caring for her mostly. So in the house were mostly Carl, my brother Carl, and my brother Troy. Mm-hmm. They were essentially the keepers of the house. So Carl had this very special attachment, I think, for a very long time to the house, but especially toward the end. And when the hurricane hit, what was the damage like, or was it damaged mostly in the aftermath of the storm? The flooding particularly caused a lot of damage, not just to the Yellow House, but throughout New Orleans. And and that's what happened. I mean, the house was just structurally wrecked during Katrina and then after with a lot of the flooding. And it sort of created a fourth door in the house. The house had three doors. And Mm -hmm. when we showed up there, there was a sort of massive crack that allowed you to see into the house. I mean, it was essentially pulled apart. Did you see the house yourself? I did. Did you go to visit after Katrina? I did. Yeah. My grandmother died about exactly a month to the day after Katrina. So Katrina, you know, August 29th or so, my grandmother literally died. We found her in a nursing home. She had been evacuated. And we found her in a nursing home in Texas. And shortly after we found her there, her organs started failing. Mm. So we all came back to Louisiana pretty shortly after. And and so during that time when we were there to bury my grandmother, we visited the Yellow House and saw it. What was it like for you when you saw the damage that the storm had done? Really too much for the eyes or the mind to take in because the house was so deformed and you know, next door, Ms. Octavia, who was our neighbor for so many years, there was a giant oak tree that had been just ripped out of the ground. And giant oaks are so massive. I used to crawl in inside of it when I was a kid. And this thing, the roots were exposed. It was so shocking. And all of my siblings were there. Many of my siblings were there having different reactions. Our neighbor was there running inside of his house, which had been devastated and looking for family pictures. So there was so much to take in. My mother, when we went to visit, just stayed in the car. She couldn't bear to engage with or look at the house even. What happened to her when the house was destroyed altogether? How did your mother react? Well, my mother is really Mm matter-of-fact as a human, She called and said, you know, the house isn't there. Curl went over. The house isn't there. She said, you know, it looks like nothing was ever there, which is the line I can never forget. How does that happen? That a house is... Just taken down. Well, I think that's part of the great dysfunction. And it wasn't only us in our house. This happened, you know, in the book I talk about the ways in which this happened often in the city. There were even churches which were in in good condition that weren't actually devastated, that were 
demolished. You know, when you were driving around, there were demolition signs everywhere. I think in the chaos and the lack of attention that was being paid in the days after, these sorts of things were happening. And and that is an infuriating idea for me because Mm -hmm. I know what is contained in a single house not to mention an entire block. And so you'd see all of these streets that where houses were gone. You'd simply see a piece of the foundation, or maybe there'd be one or two houses left on the block. So I was really moved by what that actually meant. Is that what motivated you to write about this? I was writing about the house long before Katrina. When I, when I went to college, so that was in 1997, 1998, I was already taking notes on the house, just the physical house, what it felt like to be in it, you know, the ways in which I felt the house was failing me. And then in 2005, when Katrina happened, something shifted because suddenly this house that I was obsessed by was no longer, you know, in 2006, it was no longer there. And so now the story intensified because I was writing about absence and I was trying to figure out how you resurrect a house with words. I want it there to be something in the space where the house once was. When you talk about those feelings that you had about the house and how strong they were, how would you describe those feelings? A kind of unceasing longing. Because the house was something we defined ourselves by. We had this intense love for it because it was the place my mother made and yet it was also it needed work so all of these sort of contradictions were embodied by it and so it just brought up in me all these passionate conflicted feelings and I wanted to suss out what they were and why I was so attached In addition to that personal story, you've worked as a journalist. You wanted to do something kind of bigger with this book. What was the larger story that you wanted to tell? Well, this is really a book driven by a lot of my personal questions. One of them is, what does it mean to be unmapped? Mm -hmm. And how do we think about the power of maps and what maps do, the frame that they kind of provide. I'm really interested in what it means to be not just a member of New Orleans, which is this deeply mythologized place. Everyone thinks they know it, and it becomes something for every person, but often left out of that story of New Orleans are all the people who essentially compose the city, who make it an interesting city. So I was exploring that. And I'm also exploring what it means to be American, frankly. Mm -hmm. I'm exploring what the American dream consists of, what you pay for it, you know, what it costs you, and all of the, the sort of trope of meritocracy. That, you know, if you work hard, something can be yours. And and I think also there's so many things in this book, but, but also just what it means to inherit soft ground, right? This is all of our challenge now. Every American city's challenge, every American's challenge is the environmental crisis facing us. And I was so struck by this that you know, on move-in day, my mother had to pay to, quote, build the ground up, right? That, that she sort of inherited sinking ground. 
and and what it means to actually interrogate, to go in the ground and say, what's structurally wrong about this ground, right? And so even in terms of the way that the book is organized, this was really important for me that that the story began before I'm even born because I needed the foundation to be really, really strong. You live now on very different uh, kind of <laughs> chunk of land, uh, a big glacial rock covered with concrete up in, in New York City in Harlem. Does New Orleans still feel like home to you? You know, it does in a way. And Harlem feels like home, a spiritual home to me for sure. But New Orleans, I go back there once a month. I have actually a tiny little shotgun house in New Orleans. So I go there and hang out with my mom and it does feel like home. There's no no place can stand in for it. And I'm not done with it, really. There was so much, many more places to go, I feel, in this book. And at a certain point, I just had to stop. But, you can write another book, you know. Oh, yes. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Sarah Broom is the author of The Yellow House. It is reviewed this week on the cover of the New York Times Book Review. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, my colleagues Tina Jordan, Greg Coles, and John Williams. Hey, guys. Hey, Hi, Pamela. Pamela. Greg, what's up? What are you reading? Uh, I'm reading a memoir called Priest Daddy. It's all one word, Priest Daddy, by the poet Patricia Lockwood that came out in 2017. I'm cheating a little bit because I read this book when it came out, but very quickly and with great enjoyment. And it resurfaced recently on the critics list of the 50 best memoirs of the past 50 years. And so sent me back to it. I'm reading it more slowly now and still with great enjoyment. It is a very funny, very raucous memoir of growing up with a father who was a Catholic priest. He started out as an atheist and then converted to, to Christianity and Lutheranism and became a Lutheran minister but had married a Catholic woman, and eventually he just went all in and became Catholic. Does she explain that? She does explain all that early on, yes. And then it's it's really a memoir of moving back home as an adult with her husband. They have gone bankrupt. They, they're facing a family crisis, and they move into the father's rectory. And he is— Really a larger-than-life character. The whole family, the, both parents, are very funny, very wild. I can't really quote from the book because I think every other word is a swear. There's a lot of sex. There's just a lot of great body good humor in it. But it's also a book that feels very timely because the father is what you'd think of as a Trump voter. He watches Fox News. He listens to Rush Limbaugh. And Patricia Lockwood herself, who has left the church, who is very much what you'd think of as kind of an East Coast liberal, has this kind of fond exasperation for her father. And we're living in a time when there's a lot of just carving out your separate political positions and ignoring each other. And they can't do that. They're all they're in the same house. And she really she loves her dad tremendously. But there's this great kind of negotiating of um, the different personalities. She's very funny on him. She, she says at one point that he's never read anything that she's written for one reason. 
no submarines. <laughs> um, it's it's just a great line. There's there is kind of a running joke about the fact that he'll only read things that have submarines in them. She mentions writing this book at one point, and her husband says, "You know, he's just been waiting for somebody to write a book about him filled with submarines." <laughs> <laughs> So it's Priest Daddy by Patricia Lockwood, very enjoyable memoir and very timely. Because of the submarines. (laughs) (laughs) Among other things. They're timeless submarines. (laughs) You were a huge fan of that book, right, John? Oh, yeah. I love that book. It, it's hysterically funny. She, She's a poet, as Greg mentioned, and she's a terrific writer. There's a lot of style to the book. But there, the lingering memory of it is just there aren't many books that make you – laugh out you know i on pretty much every page she's a poet <laughs> with a stand-up comics sense of timing yes. <laughs> and also a sense for the non sequitur she's she's definitely not afraid to make you laugh in very easy obvious ways but she's smart and funny so it but doesn't also feel cheap. in very uncomfortable ways and yeah. she's a poet who came to prominence first for a poem that she wrote that was published online called the rape joke and it was a long poem about her own rape and there's a lot in this book about sexual trauma and about negotiating that within her family and within her church and some of the problems that Catholicism has had dealing with all of that. And so it's it's topical for a lot of reasons. And it's deep for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of depth to that book, but but it's since so few books make you laugh that much, that's kind of the the small list I put it on of books that made me laugh out loud. Homeland by Sam Lipsight, Money by Mary oh, Mary yeah. a few of the others. Yeah, I want to know that whole list, John. <laughs> it's, not, it's not very long, which is why I emphasize that so much about Priest Daddy. I think um, that this week's book is not on your list. Are, are you reading a guess. funny book now? Yeah, no, no. Um, <laughs> it, it's great, but it's not funny. It's also timely just for me because I'm, I'm actually heading straight to the airport after work today to go to the Edinburgh Book Festival to talk to the Australian author Tim Winton who here is a very well-published and well-reviewed writer, but in Australia is something of a a giant. He's won their top literary prize four times, and he's fairly prolific. So I'm talking to him about his most recent book, The Shepherd's Hut, but about his career as well. And so I've been going back and reading some of his his backlist. And the one I read most recently is a 2008 novel called Breath. And it's a fairly short novel by his standards. And it's about two teenage boys in Western Australia, which is where the vast majority of his works are set and where he grew up, who are surfers. And it's sort of layabouts. I mean, one of them is a 12-year-old, 12-year-old old when the book starts. His name is Looney. And the narrator of the book, whose name is Brucey Pike, but everyone calls him Pikelet, is... Setting them on a certain path with those names, really. Yes. <laughs> Pikelet and Looney. And Pikelet describes Looney at one point as solitary and feral. And then he's kind of a wild kid who gets into trouble and, and is at loose ends. And they both come under the wing. Uh, Pikelet has a bit more of a traditional home with parents and, and a fairly stable family, but they come under the wing of this old surfer who lives off the beaten path and had old glory days that he doesn't like to talk about. They find these magazines under his house with pictures of him in these giant waves and these international surfing magazines. But now he's just kind of a guru hippie type and he takes them under his wing and tries to get them to build up their courage and take on these really big, dangerous waves. And the way that Winton writes these scenes where they're actually surfing are sometimes very stomach-churning, even though you're reading a book where he talks about these 20-foot waves that break onto jetties and onto rocks and just sort of leave you essentially trying to out, outrun death. And Bill Sanderson, who's the 
the older man. I think at some point in the book you learn he's 36, which you know, <laughs> up until that point you're literally picturing him in his late 50s or early 60s and kind of grizzled. But he has an American wife who they also get involved with and have, she's kind of surly and, and doesn't like them hanging around. But around the same time that the book came out or a little after, Winton wrote an op-ed for The Times called The Thrill of Breathlessness because he himself was is and was a surfer. But when he was younger, he also did this very dangerous thing where you di- you dive down and you try to hold your breath for as long as you can. And people do this as, as competitors. It's a very marginalized sport and people die doing it sometimes. And so he wrote about that. And so I just thought I'd read one paragraph from that op-ed to give you a sense of, of what he's getting at. He says, to overcome the involuntary resistance, the immense ache your body produces in its need to expel used air and to draw breath, I developed the kind of self-hypnosis that many athletes and artists use in order to endure or simply maintain concentration. The heart rate slows. For a while, a sort of peace washes through the body as you relax beyond your initial limits. Even as the weight of water begins to squeeze your limbs and organs, your consciousness narrows until your mind feels like a hot copper wire running ever more finely through your core. The experience is both mindless and meditative, painful and pleasurable. This peculiar sensation, which is, I suppose, a kind of overcoming, was and remains addictive. He's a, he's a really lovely writer. I've, I've, I had read him a bit before, but in preparation for this festival, I've been reading him a lot more, and I, I highly recommend everything I've read so far. But what first? Oh, what first? You know, there's a big novel from the early 90s called Cloud Street that I think is the way that a lot of people find him. It's about two families living in a kind of divided house. And there's something dark at the heart of it, but it's a little bit more raucous on the surface and comic than some of his other books. I really did like that. I'm not sure it's the most indicative of his books. I really loved a novel called Dirt Music. I really loved this, Breath. And he's got a beautiful memoir from a few years ago called Island Home, which is really just a sort of environmentalist activist book about Australia, and he describes the landscapes really beautifully. How about you, Tina? What are you reading this week? So I'm reading The Doll Factory by Elizabeth McNeil, which was part of our July thriller issue. And I'm sort of doing what Greg did. I had read half of it to assign it, but I didn't finish it. And it has stuck with me in the months since, and I felt compelled to go back. It's a Victorian thriller. It's set during the building of the Crystal Palace, which was the location of the Great Exhibition of 1851. And... It's a lovely recreation of London at that time. Real characters, Dickens makes a cameo, as well as imagined ones. And at its heart is this young woman named Iris who is making a living painting faces on dolls in this crummy little doll shop run by this mad woman, basically. I'm super creeped out. Yeah, it's, it's super creepy. And she's working there. She's spotted by a member of a group called the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, which was a real group in England at the time of artists who wanted to revitalize, you know, cultural movement. And it's a fictional artist in the book. It's not one of the real members of the Brotherhood. And Wait, he, so was this the Brotherhood of the Pre-Raphaelites who wanted to go back to art before Raphael? Yes. Yes. So he wants to paint her, but she herself wants to be a painter with a capital P. So she agrees to be his subject if he'll teach her how to paint. But thrumming beneath the story of Iris is the story of this character straight out of Poe, this taxidermist named Silas, who becomes obsessed with her. And I'm just going to read a description of Silas to put you in the right frame of mind. (laughs) 
Silas is sitting at his desk, a stuffed turtle dove in his palm. The cellar is still and quiet as a tomb, aside from the slow gusts of his breath that ruffle the bird's plumage. He looks around him at the glass jars that line the walls, each labeled and filled with the bloated hulks of pickled specimens. Swollen lambs, snakes, lizards, and kittens press against the edges of their confinement. Don't wriggle free of me now, you little rascal, he mutters, picking up the pliers and tightening the wire on the bird's claws. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's like That's something good. out of Hitchcock. It's really... Hannibal Lecter. Atmos- yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. It's really atmospheric and creepy and wonderful. Tina, does it frustrate you having to preview so many thrillers and not be able to finish them and yes. not know how they end? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, often I'm, I have to skim to read to the, to the end, but sometimes like this I have to put them aside. And, you know, this was one I just couldn't get out of my head. And Pamela, what about you? What are you reading this week? I'm reading a book. I said I was going to read it this summer against all of my initial better instincts, 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret by Craig Brown. On the cover, it says, rollicking, irresistible, unputdownable. And I would agree. (laughs) I agree with Parle's, our own critic, her assessment in that, you know, she was coming from a similar place, zero interest in the royals, which is my starting point. (laughs) But Craig Brown is really talented. And the way he approaches this biography, which has been written about a bunch, um, and I think even talked about on this podcast is really interesting. It's not a birth-to-death biography. He approaches Princess Margaret from all of these different angles. He riffs. He goes into sort of fictional alternate histories at certain points. He's got a great sense of humor, and his characters are worth it. So Princess Margaret obviously is the central figure. But just to give you a sense of his writing and the way he sees all people, I want to describe and read a little bit from a description of Alistair Forbes, who was a cousin of FDR and the uncle of the future Secretary of State John Kerry and presidential candidate. And Margaret used to refer to him as that awful Ali Forbes, while Queen Elizabeth II was once heard to yell, will you please put me down as he lifted her up during a Highland reel. So Craig Brown writes, like many of the most energetic stately home guests, he traded in gossip, usually about those with whom he had just been staying. His fruity tales were peppered with nicknames, often based around puns. For instance, he retitled Temple de la Gloire, Oswald and Diana Mosley's home outside Paris, The Concentration of Camp. Essex House, the home of James and Alvide Lees Milne, became Bisex House. Forbes was long rumored to be some sort of nonspecific spy, either for the CIA or MI6 or possibly both at the same time. His whole life was to some extent swathed in mystery, much of it of his own making. Sustained by a private income, he dabbled in politics and journalism, and in his 60s took to reviewing books for the Times Literary Supplement and The Spectator and aside how I would love to read those. His prose had a Ferbenkian quality, its long, elegantly rambling sentences, chock-a-block with foreign phrases, ribald asides, Byzantine names, incautious allegations, and forensic examinations of abstruse questions such as, did the Duke of Windsor have pubic hair? He had a morbid side to his character. At funerals, some detected an air of triumph emanating from him as friends, enemies, and chance acquaintances were lowered into the soil. He was also something of an early bird at deathbeds, pen at the ready to describe any last words. It was death that brought his competitive streak to the surface. He had, for instance, made it his mission to be the last man to see Diana Cooper alive. 
<laughs> Early bird at deathbeds. Is I know. Have you gotten to any of the made-up chapters yet? Yes, yes. Right? I love so he, those. He just, you know, will give these alternate histories. Like, let's suppose that Princess Margaret had married group Captain Townsend. And it's a lot of fun. It's, you know, it's a little bit alarming to read after having watched the first two seasons of The Crown, which I had done with my daughter, I then read some bits of it to her, and and, and her response was, you know, I, I really liked Vanessa Kirby's Princess Margaret a lot more, <laughs> um, because, you know, Princess Margaret was a, a kind of dark figure, so we'll see what Helena Bonham Carter does with her. I, I think we're going to see a very different side in season three. I would urge everybody to to read not only the book, but then to go back and read Pearl's Review, which is itself a very fun, entertaining she, read. She picked it as one of her favorite books of the year, didn't she? Yeah, she did. Yeah. All right. Let's go down our books again. Uh, I read Breath by Tim Winton. I read Priest Daddy by Patricia Lockwood. I'm reading The Doll Factory by Elizabeth McNeil. And I'm reading 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret by Craig Brown. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Pamela. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back, albeit not right away. The Book Review Podcast is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with the great help of my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.